Have you heard a pop song in the last two decades? Odds are you've been witness to the work of our guests this week. Ku Carell is the vocal producer in the music business. He's won five Grammy Awards and has worked with nearly every superstar making music today. That includes Rihanna, Beyonce, Shakira, Justin Bieber, and Jennifer Lopez, just to name a few. We got the chance to sit down with Kook and learn how he became the go-to vocal producer in the music industry. His journey took him all over the country and through several different industries. He joins us to tell that story on this episode of The Big Break. I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. I was born in, you know, in Chicago proper and uh, like fourth grade or so moved out to the south suburbs in Calumet City, you know, so, you know, definitely grew up there. And my introduction to, to music was through my, my mom and her two sisters. So my mom and her two sisters were background singers in Chicago. And this was around, you know, this was back in the day when uh, uh, Chicago was like the hub for advertising. So like they were the first call background singers on a whole bunch of sessions for, you know, McDonald's, Pepsi, uh, Coke, Kraft, um, you know, just to name a few. So I would always be with my aunt and be with my mom going to the studio with them. And, you know, my, my whole family is musical. So it's like, you know, my aunt and my mom, they sang, played instruments and were always, you know, as, as me and my cousins were growing up, we just watched them do what they did. And, you know, once fortunately early in life, we realized that, you know, I realized that I had a musical gift and that was, you know, I could sing at an early age. And, but my first instrument was guitar. Then I realized that, you know, I played guitar for, for years and I realized I wanted to try drums and I realized I had the talent to play drums. But it was really cool. I, I had a great transition thing because as I got older, I realized that, like, wait a second, I'm good, but I'm not that good. You know, I was, <laughs> uh, you know, I was really fortunate that I just had the mindset to be honest with myself and go, well, wait a second, I'm good, but I'm not as good as that dude. You know, like Neil Peart or Phil Collins. You know, great, 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 great drummers. And at that point, this was like at the this was when I came to that realization. That's when you know, producers started being the big thing. Jimmy Jam, mm. Terry Lewis, L.A. Babyface. But way before that, Quincy Jones. And, you know, around the same time with Quincy Jones early on was a guy named Charles Stepney who was responsible for getting me and my whole family in the track of being in the music industry. Early on, he was a, a, a songwriter, arranger, a record producer, and he produced uh, records for projects like the Rotary Connection, then went on to, he did a whole bunch of radio and TV commercials. And that's who my mom and, and her sisters worked for, as well as him producing like Earth, Wind and Fire. So when, as a kid, seeing this guy 
do this production thing that really ignited a fire in me and my cousins, you know, to just follow that path. So he was a he was a producer for an ad agency that your your mom would, would work well, for. He, he was actually an independent contractor, from what I remember. Um, he was mm-hmm. you know independent contractor, songwriter, arranger, and ad agencies would hire him to write the jingles. Okay, and then he would hire my mom and her sisters, my aunts. Gotcha. What what kind of music did you listen to when you were growing up? Man, when I grew up, I listened to everything. I listened to rock, pop jazz uh not too much what do you, what orchestra not orchestral you know like not a lot of stuff like that but just mainly pop jazz rock heavy rock you know one of my one of the first albums that I, that I ever bought on my own was uh Hart's album Dreamboat Annie and so that, all that kind of stuff you know Van Halen everything so you had a pretty diverse background in music absolutely yeah yeah, which I love. I love. I look back on that, and I love the fact that I had a diverse toolbox. Because what I think now is listening to all of those different styles of music, I feel like I developed a great toolbox of audio colors, mm. and those things go into all of my production now. You saw these producers out there, and you kind of you realized they were that was kind of like the path. Is is that what you're saying? Instead of you know being the guitarist or being the drummer, you you saw the production as your your path? Yeah, 100%. Because I, I felt like, you know, if I wanted to be a, a musician, I mean, I saw that the life of a musician is pretty hard and you have to be really special to mm-hmm. cut through the amount of uh, musicians that there are out there. And I was just, I just realized that I was good, but I wasn't that good. And I just decided, it's like, well, mm-hmm. wait a second. I know that I have the patience to, to sit back and be in the, be in the background and carve out something you know i can sit here and carve out a record and until i feel like it's right and perfect it absolutely yeah gotcha so what what happened after that after you kind of made that decision after making the decision to go into production you know i I spent many 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 years well at the same time as i was like developing as a producer you know, nothing, obviously I wasn't making money. So what I had to do was take on like little jobs. My first job before, you know, music started, before I started making money with music was working at McDonald's. So, you know, I just developed this mindset of going, you know, while I'm doing this whole music thing, I still have to do life. So went out, got a job at McDonald's, worked there for like three years and then, you know, as a crew member, and then actually went over into management for three years. Which was really dope because at the same time I was learning people skills there, mm-hmm. and I always say like one of the best jobs that's that one of the first one of the best first jobs somebody can have is working at McDonald's because you learn so much not just about cooking food but you learn about you know you learn the most important things especially with, with what I do and that's having people skills you know how to knowing how to communicate with people knowing how to you know problem solve and all that stuff and then the other thing is learning systems like you know McDonald's their whole thing is based off of of a system you make a burger you know in LA the same way you would make it in Germany so like that's a mm-hmm. that's an important thing and that goes into you know how I do records i'm not saying it's a formula but it's definitely a system to you know knowing that we're going to do this all the time and as long as we do this in these different ingredients we should land on a successful product hmm. if that makes any sense 
<laughs> yeah, it does. Is that something that you adopted kind of later in your career or is that something that you brought, you know, directly into music? I definitely I definitely brought that into music, but it wasn't like, I mean, it took me a long time to come around and, and go, oh, wait a second, you know, for the two mindsets to come together. Because, mm. you know, when you're young and you're trying to do music, it's like the wild, wild west. You're out there just trying to figure stuff out, you yeah. know. And you were doing, you were getting those little odd music jobs um, just through your connections and the kind of the Chicago ad scene. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. It's because so uh, going backwards, once I so I was working at McDonald's when you know as I was doing that, I was also uh, working at a jingle company, which was my uncle's company in Chicago called Joy Art Music. So you know when I had downtime, I would go down to his office watch how he produced, watched how he wrote jingles. And then he eventually hired me, but I was making like a hundred dollars a week. So it wasn't like real money, you mm-hmm. know? So I did that for, I did that for several years and then ended up going back to McDonald's again, <laughs> you know? Do you remember any of the jingles that you were a part of? Oh, absolutely. McDonald's, definitely McDonald's, Kraft Philadelphia cream cheese, Captain Crunch, you know, stuff for, uh, for general, what's the name of the company? General Mills. Mm-hmm. But all major, all major commercials. Yeah, it's interesting. You don't really hear, at least today, about uh, you know people talking about about writing jingles and uh, you know being a part of that that part of the music industry. It's very particular. Um, yeah, one hundred percent. I'm glad I had that that experience because that goes into you know having gone through that experience gave me the ability to be. Uh, what I call a sharpshooter at what it is we do. Every time I go in the studio, I'm not in there like. Uh, vibing it out or uh waiting for inspiration to come it's like for what i do it's like man we we have a job to do let's get in here and do it Hmm. you know and going through going through the jingle scene you definitely learn that that you don't have time to sit in there you know time is money for sure so you don't have time to be hanging out waiting your whole thing is to figure out what it is you got to do in the studio get in there get it done so that the uh the song or the spot can be on the air the next day or three days from now so what happened after that? You said, you know, you're working through the 2000s and getting some experience with music and, and doing that, but not really making anything. So what happened in the, you know, the latter half of that, that decade for you? So for me, so I was actually doing, uh, let me go back. So in 1992, oh uh, me and my cousins decided to, you know, we had always grown up think, wanting to move to LA, you know, the, tip, the stereotypical dream, you know, we're going to we moved to LA, become big songwriters and music producers. So in 1992, me and my cousins and our whole company, we we decided to move to LA, leave Chicago, go to LA, get to LA. We're there for several years to you know pursuing music. Nothing really happened musically, and it was and after a while, you know, I started to just get burnt out on the whole thing. You know, chasing music, try, you know, chasing artists, trying to develop artists, trying to write a hit record and all that stuff. That shit gets boring and tiring after a while. And I had decided, uh, I really felt a life change coming. And at that particular time in 96, once we were in LA, I felt a life change coming and met, met a guy in California who had invited me to his church. And uh, went to his church, and just from that one visit at his church, I really felt like, you know, I wanted to take a break from the the chasing the music industry, the whole music scene, and really just go along that path of seeing what my life was, seeing what the spiritual side 
of my life was all about learning, learn about that and to really, um, you know, investigate and see if, if that was something that I was supposed to, supposed to do with the rest of my life, meaning ministry, you know? Mm -hmm. And as I was doing that, I really, at that point, that's when I learned, you know, I went into music ministry. So what I did at that time, I was a, a children's worship leader. So I would, uh, every Sunday I was the guy that led the kids in the worship service. And, you know, for me, that was extremely fulfilling because I, I realized that I had the best of both worlds at that particular time, what I was thinking, because I was doing music, I was using my musical ability, but I was also shaping other people's, especially kids, I was shaping the lives of children, mm -hmm. their spiritual lives, you know, and for me, that, that was and still is extremely fulfilling. So I, I ended up doing that for about, man, like 10 years mm -hmm. to where all I focused on was, was that, you know, I was, a uh, um, I was working at a church uh, in Cal in Eagle Rock, California, called uh, Christian Assembly, and you know I had several opportunities to become become full time staff. And every time I would pray about becoming full time staff, like that would be the way I'd make my money. I would always hear or just hear hear my in my spirit and feel God go, "No, that isn't for you." Mm -hmm. And I was and it was really confusing because I'm like, well man, how am I supposed to make money doing what I'm doing if I'm, because basically what I was doing was bartering. So I would do this, this uh, ministry thing at the church on Sundays and the, the church owned a bunch of houses, you know, in the neighborhood. So in, in return for doing this service at the church with the kids, they let me live rent free, me and my family in one of the houses, right? So it's, it, you know, mm -hmm. it was kind of like, all right, this is cool. But I'm still going, man, well, I need to make money. So we pray about this. Me and my wife would pray about me becoming full-time staff at the church. And God would always go, that's not for you. So, you know, we just, we stayed faithful with what it was he had in front of us that, at that particular time. Fast forward to like 2005, my cousin, Tricky Stewart, who had uh, since moved to Atlanta, was re him and his uh, brother Mark Stewart? They were retooling their company, which is Red Zone Entertainment, and asked me if I would come down and kind of help them produce some stuff because they knew that you know what I did uh, as far as vocal production. And I went down to Atlanta, produced a record with with Tricky, and really felt another life change coming. And you know, long story short, decided you know talked to my wife about it, and we prayed about it, and decide that you know we were gonna that it was cool for me to go ahead and start to pursue music again in mm -hmm. the secular industry. Right. Mm -hmm. So we go down to Atlanta. We're in 2005, 2006, I'm working with tricky and, uh, we, you know, we start writing together and producing stuff. And that's when I really started getting into the mode of vocal production, because all I would do is tricky would write records with other writers, but all I would do all day long is, cut the vocals with the demo singer or with the writer and then do all the rough mixes. So it basically taught me at that point how to get an artist in, produce their vocals and make sure I was getting great stuff all at the same time, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in a, in a timely fashion. So that's how everything transformed from ministry into, you know, back into the, uh, the music game. And how old were you when you you went off to to the church and the ministry for those years? Ooh, I was twenty, I think twenty seven or twenty eight. Okay, and yeah. your your cousins that you moved to LA with were still kind of chasing the music industry there. 
Yeah, they were still doing their thing. So so once we got to L.A., uh, my cousins, they actually stayed only three or four years, and then they went down to Atlanta. That's when they moved down to Atlanta. And, uh, and then I stayed in L.A. for the next, man, 12, 13 years. Right. And if they, not longer. And they moved to L.A. or uh, sorry, to Atlanta kind of right when that that whole Dirty South movement was was coming about. And yeah. Yep. Yep. So did they see that happening or was it just kind of a, a lucky thing that they moved there at the right time? I think it was a combination of both. I mean, hmm. you know, they saw it happening, but, you know, it was just a lucky thing. Well, and it was great because, uh, well, not lucky because Tricky's an amazing producer. He had connected with L.A. Reed, you know, as far as it stood, as far as I know of, of the story, he had connected with L.A. Reed. L.A. Reed brought him down to Atlanta, and um, he became a part of that whole movement, that whole scene. So you move there, and you're starting to to really get your hands on vocal production and mastering that aspect of these of these records. Um, yeah. So what what happened after that? So after that, within that time. Uh, Fast forward 2005, 2006, we go through the, a whole year of just that mode of it, writing, you know, Tricky was, Tricky and his brother Mark, which are my cousins, worked out, they were, they were showing me all the different guys in the game who did vocal production and, you know, guys like, uh, who was it? It was the underdogs, Harvey Mason Jr., all the, his, uh, Tank, you know, they were like, listen to these guys, like, these are the guys who are doing they're the guys who who are producing records that you know that feel right like they're great records and i just went on a study and binge mm. of listening to their records you know i'd listen to everything that harvey mason did you know with uh with his writing and production partner in that time tricky started just going man we could if we keep keep this up we could actually do a nice run as far as like writing hits and, you know, we met about it every single day. We planned on, you know, what do we do if we get a hit record or what do we do to get a get a place where we're writing hit records? And we just carried on with that mentality for about a year. And then fast forward, like at the I think it was like the end of 2006 is when we uh, when we wrote Umbrella for Rihanna. So your, your group here was pretty self-assured that they you could do this. And, you know, you have three different people that are that are all confident when you were studying these records that they were giving you. What did you do for that? Were you just sitting in a room with headphones on and listening and taking notes? Yeah, it was a lot of that. A lot of sitting around, sitting by myself, listening to it, you know, just listening to the records and seeing what kind of emotion was coming from it and what made it special. Hmm. I remember one of the demos I had, one of the first demos I produced for Tricky when I came down to Atlanta. I cut all the vocals on this group that he was producing and spent like a week just comping it and chopping it up based off of what, what, you know, I was learning from these other guys spent like a week comping it. I didn't want him to hear it until I got done comping it, did the rough mix. And I was like, all right, man, you want to come in and hear this record? And he's like, yeah, yeah, let me check it out. Trick, tricky came in the room. He listened to it and he goes, yeah, that's hot. Now make it a record. I was like, Oh, wait a minute. And that like that, it, it stunned me because and that was the day that I realized that there's a difference between a demo and a record. You know, there's a difference between just going in, cut, capturing information and slapping some some plugins on it. There's a difference between that process and actually going in and creating a record. Hmm. How familiar were you with all the equipment? 
I so that was the other thing. I was not familiar at all because when I left the game, everything was still analog. Mm-hmm. So that was the last thing that I, that I, that I knew. So when I came back into the game, um, I actually had to, you know, I was like, wait, what's Pro Tools? And I literally had to teach myself and go, wait a second. So you're telling me that we can capture music in that thing? How are we getting music <laughs> into the computer? You know, so it was a completely different thing that i had to learn and teach myself you know and i just man i jumped all the way in so let's uh now let's get to the juicy part where you got uh you know it's it's 2007 you guys have been talking about getting uh, or 2006 or 2007 talking about getting a hit and uh and you guys write umbrella so what walk me through that It's, it's crazy i don't think i've ever told a lot of people this part of it but you know so when trick had turned when they had turned me on to harvey mason the underdogs, I would go home and as I would listen to their music, because they had their music on their website, right? And I would just literally listen to their music on their website and look at their picture and Harvey would, would kill me if he heard this, but I would look at their pictures and I would look at their website and go, man, next year, I'm going to be taking all of their work. <laughs> and I, I mean, I know that's, <laughs> that's a crazy thing, but it was just one of those things where, you know, that's how you pump yourself up. Mm-hmm. So looking at their website. And I remember we were, uh, red zone, we were uh, actually shut down for the Christmas break. And I had, I had just heard about the pro the, uh, program, uh, logic. Right. Mm-hmm. So, cause trick was telling me, man, if, if, man, if you learn this thing, we can like, just keep going. Like we can go learn logic. You can be my guy to engineer this stuff, you know, and we'll just keep it going. I was like, all right, cool. So, we uh we were shut down for the christmas break i was like i got up one morning i was looking at their website and i was like man nobody is at the studio i'm gonna go down the studio open up this and try to learn this logic thing and uh you know and you know just learn it so i can have it my 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 thinking was so i i'd have that knowledge when we got back up after the christmas break right Mm -hmm. so i go down the studio crack open logic start going through loops find the loop that's that is the beat of umbrella um you know and i just i just start looping it and start plug trying to learn the plugins what the plugins were all about um short shortly after that tricky comes to the studio and he's like yo what's that i was like nothing i'm just messing around and he goes open up the gear so we open up the gear he starts doing music you know he starts doing a bass line and all you know just the music to it and then shortly after that dream just shows up and then Dream is like, what are y'all doing? We're like, nothing, we're just here. And and Dream goes, open up the mic. He goes in the booth, starts singing the melody down from top to bottom. You know, and I'm tracking him as he's putting the melody on. And we're all just kind of like, you know, doing, just we're just doing what we do. And uh, then he goes, all right, so take me back to the top. Then he we go back to the top of record. And he starts putting the lyrics to the melody um, that he that he laid down. And, you know, not long not long after that, umbrella was a complete record man so it all just came together just like that yeah yeah and the the you know the the thing that i love about that process is that we you know in those in that moment that the record was being created um what i learned from that and what i use i use what i use to this day was that we went in with the intention of just doing what we do because we love doing what we do not we went in there and we were hunkered down for the next 12 to 24 hours until we came up with something. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
yet. So for me, that like that's like the main ingredient for for me for what I do. It's like, man, as long as we know that there's something we got to do, let's just go in and and let it flow. You know, as opposed to you know, I I'm like the I'm the one guy that I hate being in the studio for just like a ridiculous amount of hours because I know that it doesn't take all that to create magic. If you get something that's that's lightning in a bottle you know, it'll flow. As a growing artist or songwriter, keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid. It's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments. A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties that are getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy-to-understand analysis with some insights that would be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the interview. For you, that's just going in there and, and setting your mind to it as opposed to just waiting around for, for something to happen? Absolutely. I mean, you know, because I, th- I think you know, like, you know if you have something good. And I think, you know, I learned that from Trick. Tricky is, you know, he's the type of producer, like, if it's not, if you're not getting that feeling from it right from the rip, like, don't even keep wasting time with it. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's what hit makers are able to do. They're able to go, well, this is a great idea. And they're honest with themselves and go, well, it's, it's, it's a great idea, but I can't see this becoming a smash. Yeah. So at that point you just go, all right, listen, let's put, let's pack, pack that away and let's try something else, you know? And if you get to a place to where it doesn't come, you know, for me, I just don't like forcing through it. I just go, man. Well, it's not here. Let's just let's just wait on it. Let you know. Let's 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 wait for the for for something special to come. Mm. That makes sense. I'm sure it can be difficult for some people though to let let something go if they're not sure. Or, you know, I'm sure that's absolutely that's tough. I mean, well, yeah. But what I've learned in that is that you know a lot of times we won't let stuff go because we're so. You know, everybody wants a hit so bad because everybody's ba- everybody's creating everybody's creating from the mindset of it only takes one record to change your life. Mm-hmm. So, especially now, you know, especially in in this generation now, like everybody, you know, if you get one record, that'll change your life. So everybody's just like, man, let's just get it, let's just finish this one because this might be the one. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, but that ain't the one. You know, it's like, and most people don't want to let. They don't want to let those go. So they'll just keep holding on to them and keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing until they, you know, they, they get it finished. And then they get their heart broken when they play it for somebody and they go, no, that's kind of, that's not hot, Mm. you know? So then they have to go back and work, work through 
that disappointment clear their clear their mindset and uh you know to try to get to a place to where they can they can write something special mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah it does it does make sense hmm. so you had this record uh that you guys produced um but it really wasn't what is anything in that time other than you know a, an mp3 or a wave file so what did you do with it from there so from there tricky uh tricky mark uh, they had, they just went into the mode of just A&R, you know, cause at that particular time, um, Tricky was, had gotten asked to work on Britney Spears, uh, album that, that was about to come back. She was about to do another album. Um, and they went into A&R mode. It was, I, I think everybody involved was like Tricky and Mark and Jazzy Faye, you know, there were a number of people who were responsible for sending it around to where it, to where it eventually landed with, Karen Kwok, who worked for L.A. Reid at, at uh, Def Jam, where Rihanna was signed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they went into A&R mode. And for me, I'm just a I was just a, a new guy in the industry who was kind of like, oh, yeah, I'll just, you know, I'm just in the background doing what I do in the studio. And the next thing I know, you know, tricking them are like, yo, L.A. Reid loves this record for this artist, uh, Rihanna. And we're going to fly to L.A. and cut the vocals. And I was like, all right, cool. You know, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know, you know, Rihanna. I didn't know any of her staff, you know, who, which are all great, great friends of mine now. So, you know, next thing I know, we're flying out to L.A. We cut the record. Uh, we finish it out. And then, uh, you know, the rest is history. You know, the record comes out. It blows up, changes all of our lives. And that was it, you know. Mm. That and and that was the thing that opened the door for everything else. What did that feel like in the moment when that when it blew up and it was on the charts? And how did your day change? I guess is a good question to ask. Man, it was surreal because we, you know, for me there was a, so for me it was a, it was a couple of different things. It was surreal, but it was also really, really, really exciting because I had that, like that whole mode that I went through when I was doing ministry. I was learning so much about just letting go, you know, letting things go and just letting it happen and me getting out of the way and allowing God to uh, take the reins and let things and, and, and put me in the right place at the right time without me thinking that I had to orchestrate stuff and messing it all up. So for me, when Umbrella happened, that was a culmination of, of all of those years of me actually going, when I decided to um, go into ministry, I was just like, man, I I don't care anymore. Like we've had so many, we've had so many artists that we've worked with. We've had so many false starts. You know, I had so many so many artists that I worked with, so many false starts, and nothing jumped jumped off and turned into that big record. And so at that point, I was just like, man, I'll do whatever I need to do right now, just so that I can stay peaceful and do music and love music as I'm doing it. Mm. So when the umbrella happened, that was, for me, that was a result of me stepping out of the way and letting God maneuver things to put me in the right place at the right time with the right people and the right situation and success happened and opened up doors. What was it like knowing that, uh, you know, you had had this super personal touch on that record of engineering the voice and making it perfect? And then, you know, there's millions or maybe billions of people that are listening to it around the world. Like what is there like a sense of pride that's uh, that, you know, that's you listen to it on the radio, probably even still today, I'm sure they play it every once in a while. It's like, it's like, well, that's me. I, I made that, 
you know, I made her voice sound that way or. Absolutely. No, no, it's, I mean, it, it is a, it's definitely a sense of pride, but for, you know, I, I, I'd have to say it like this, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a thing of a spiritual and a faith journey pride for me, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, I've had, um, I've had several, several times where just looking at the whole story, you know, I've had a lot of times where, you know, God had to just reassure me at the, you know, in this process and after the process he's like listen if you hadn't woke up that morning just think about it if you hadn't woke up that morning that record never would have been created because mm-hmm. that it was it started out of just going oh i'm gonna go down to the studio and learn logic you know what i mean mm-hmm. so when you have a revelation like that it's extremely humbling and it's extremely uh yeah it's humbling and it just really continues to set the course for wait a second we we made a record that changed how records are done, you know, it was like one of the biggest, biggest records of the decade, if that's the right way to say it, mm-hmm. but it was created, it, it came together just out of a seed. So for me, I go, you know, when I look at it, that, you know, that's the thing that God says to me, it's like, man, that a, a record that changed so many people's lives, all these people that were part of making that record and promoting that record and who benefited from that record it was born out of a seed that I planted in you to just get up and go learn a learn learn a a program. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So I'm like, for me, I'm like, whoa, that that's insane. Mm-hmm. That realization. Hmm. Yeah. So how did your professional life change after that? I'm sure it was, you know, everyone kind of kind of knew who was on this record. So how did it change? It opened the doors for for everything. I think that was the thing that you know, people started to notice a difference in, uh, so every time Tricky and Dream would get hired to write for a project, you know, Tricky would be like, you know, this is my vocal producer, you know, he's going to cut the vocals and we would cut, you know, after Umbrella, I'd cut the artist record like Mary J. Blige and, and the artist would kind of go, well, man, wait a second, how come I don't sound like this on the other records? Hmm. And Tricky would go, because he didn't cut them, you know? <laughs> and then at, consequently, they would come to me and they go, well, listen, you know, would you mind cutting a couple more records on me and, and possibly go back and recut some of the other ones so that they, you know, there'd be continuity? And I was like, absolutely. Hmm. So in that, you know, that became the cycle for a long time of just, you know, going back recutting recutting uh vocals on different artists you know and which all started like you know with rihanna on umbrella and then my first grammy came from when i did that for uh mary j blige Mm. so that just opened up the door and people were going well wait a second all of these people are you know and you know tricky and them were writing hits you know with these records so it was just like a snowball thing people were going well all right we went we want tricky and dream and we definitely want that dude to cut those vocals <laughs> yeah you guys were just on a roll right yeah, exactly <laughs> after that it's like it's like you say everyone was kind of coming to you and um is is that where your your network um you know people talk about networks stay in the music industry um because they're so crucial is that where it really started to blossom from there? It's like you meet one person and they say, well, you should also do the, the vocals on this person's album and you, you work from there. Absolutely. That's it. Yeah. And it's because people ask me all the time, it's like, well, man, how do you get all your work? And I go, it's word of mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's first and foremost, the experience that the artists have with me and, you know, and their management and it's the, it's what we capture when we're in the studio. And then it's, it's all word of mouth. Like I don't, 
I don't go out, I don't promote or anything like that. I just make sure that, you know, from that standpoint, I just make sure that I handle my business and that I come in and do what I'm hired to do mm. with, with very little drama. And, you know, when I, you know, a lot of times, uh, some artists and, and, uh, managers laugh at me because I'll come into a situation. They go, man, what do you think of this record? You know, do you like this record? And I go, you know, you didn't hire me to come in and A&R the record, you know, even though I have an opinion, but you didn't hire me to come in and A&R the record. You came in and asked me to cut a record. Mm. So I want to do that, you know, and I think that's a, that's a, a thing that a lot of, a lot of up and coming producers really need to learn is don't be a jack of all trades. Mm become an expert at the one thing that you feel like you're gifted to do. Mm. Uh, that's something I wanted to talk to you about because you are a vocal producer. And like, if you look at your, all the tracks that you're on, that's what your, your title is. Right. And a lot of people coming up uh, today in the industry, maybe it's because they have to be everything. They have to be there. Right. They're a vocal producer, they're engineer. They, they do everything because uh, that's, yeah. that's how you make it. But um, yeah. how would you tell them to kind of specialize in, in what they think is best? Try everything and then maybe figure out something or, you know, how would you recommend yeah, it? Yeah, I love, I love how you say that. Try everything, like, you know, if, out of necessity, if that's what you have to do. If You know, because I, listen, I engineer for my sessions, but I'm not trying to mix the record. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So try everything if and if if it's out of necessity do what you have to do but eventually get to a place to where you specialize in something so that people call you for that thing mm. because you know cuz you can't i can't focus on getting a great vocal performance out of an artist if i'm thinking about mixing the mixing the album too right like it's just like it's just not possible like you can do it and and people do it you get lucky but i just know for me I want to be an expert and people, and, and I've, I've carved out that niche of be, of being considered an expert. And it lines up because people call me not just to cut records for the album, but people call me to, they call me if they've got the first single that they know they don't have time to experiment with somebody that, 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 that doesn't have experience in producing a vocal. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't just need a uh, vocal producer. They need, they need you. They want a specialist. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be, if you want to be considered a specialist, be a specialist in that one thing, you know, people call you that it's like, they go, Oh, this is the biggest single. This is going to be the biggest single. Mm -hmm. Who do we call? Call Kukarel. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that, that's humbling. That's insane. And I'd much rather have that than somebody go, well, can you come and engineer? this thing is like, yeah, I'm, I'm an engineer, but I know 14 different engineers that are way better than me who actually do that engineering shit. You know, I can edit, I can make sure everything feels great and, uh, and sound great, but they'll take it a lot further than I will as an engineer. Mm. And I, you know, and I think that that just comes with being honest, being honest to yourself. You know, th that goes back to when, when, uh, I realized that I wasn't a great drummer. You know what I mean? Like a world where I wouldn't be a world renowned drummer or guitarist, mm -hmm. you know? But you tried it. I wanted to, yeah, I tried it and I was honest with myself and go, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that because I want to be the best. I want to be the, the absolute best at what it is I do. Mm. You know, and, and I love, I love it, you know, and even just us talking about it right now really solidifies it with me because, you know, I'm still blown away when I walk into rooms and people go, yo, this, this dude is he's the best you know or to see a magazine cover and somebody 
you know, somebody saying that, you know, the world's first most successful vocal producer, like that, that's insane. That's humbling to me. Yeah. You know, but that's the brand that you built for yourself. Absolutely. Mm. 100%. What do you think people that are, are just getting started today or trying to get their first hit really need to focus on? Man, I would say just being organic. You know, I, I was speaking to some writers uh, a, about a week ago, and they were telling me about their writing process and that they were writing based on, uh, they were writing, they weren't writing based on emotion of a record. They weren't writing musically. They were writing based, they, it's like mathematically or based on algorithms and all that kind of shit. I was like, that's not, that's not music. You know what I'm saying? Yes, we can have hits based on, uh, you know, based on like moving stuff around and editing, doing tricky edits. But at the end of the day, a, a great song is a great song. Mm. You will never, ever be able to uh, get beyond a great melody with a great concept. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like the, the, the old theory that, you know, with Quincy Jones, I don't care, man. I don't care how advanced we get with technology. If you can play something with one finger on a piano, a melody that people will remember, you've done, like, you've done your job. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be, you know, because I used Ableton or because I used Fruity Loops or because I used Logic. You know, you still got to write a song with that shit. Mm. My advice is to, you know, focus on the song, you know, figure out what makes a hit song and follow that pattern. You know, you need a you need a great melody. You need a great verse. You need a great uh, B section. You need a monster hook. Mm. You know, a lot of writers that I come across, you know, today, they they write, you know, up and coming writers. They 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 come strong out the shoot with a great intro, a great hook or a great uh, verse. But when they get to that hook, it was like they just decided this is good enough. It's like, no. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like when it gets to the hook, that shit's got to be, got to explode. Yeah. You got to have all the pieces there. Yeah. How has your approach to vocal engineering or sorry, vocal producing changed over those years as you, as you've worked with Rihanna and Mary J. Blige and, and all these, all these, you know, great voices of the last decade how's how's your approach to vocal producing changed it hasn't changed at all because when i realize when i realize what it is i i do i just stick to that mm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. it, it it really hasn't i know that sounds boring <laughs> <laughs> but you know because a lot first because for me a lot of it is is mental preparation you know i go in i have to be mentally prepared because a lot of times when i cut records i've never heard them before you know, people call me and go, yo, can you come and cut this record? This is our first single. It's coming out next week. And can we send you an MP3? I was like, yeah, send it to me. But I haven't had a chance to like really sit and and take it apart. But what I focus on mo- more than anything, as long as I stay in a place to where I'm ready to just be flexible with that artist, feel them out, see how they want to re- cut the record, see what kind of mood they're in. Uh, and focus solely on, of course, we're going to get the lyrics right. And of course, we're going to get the melody and all that stuff right. But mostly, I want to get the emotion mm. out of the artist. And that's the, that's the difference maker with me. I learned that early. And, you know, in so like when we did Umbrella, 
I definitely had to sit back and look at it, you know, and did other records after that. I had to look at it and Tricky would go, this is what's special about this, you know, you know, and having a great mentor, you know, which is what he was for me, like a music mentor, just going, this is what, what makes a, a great melody. This is what makes a great passionate performance, you, you know, listening to all the, all the nuances, the breaths and the, the cry and all that kind of stuff in the vocal. Once I learned that stuff early on, I was like, that's it. You don't change, you know, because that's what that's what makes Kukarel's vocal promo, bo- vocal production, um, Kukarel's vocal production. Mm. And that's why you you tend to work with the same artists over and over again, because not only do you know them and they and they know you, but because you feel really familiar with with how to best produce them. Yeah, but but it's not even. It, I mean, I work with a ton of artists, so you know, I think. Yeah, at that point it just becomes I know how to produce them, but it's it's it it it's also just being they feel comfortable, you know. It, it's like I, I say this all the time. It's it's all about the experience as well, hmm. you know. Letting the artist be who the artist is, and it depends on what what kind of record you're doing. But I'm just not the type of producer that pushes an artist to sound like Kukarel hmm. or produces an artist to be what i want them to be i want them to be who they are and we take both of our gifts and uh, both of our specialties and bring them together to create something that people have never heard before so you're not trying to 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 steer them um in your way but just kind of find their own voice i guess absolutely Mm. because because what what's really critical is that the magic is already in the record like when we hear the demo the magic is in the demo so for for me that's the biggest thing that I'm doing is making sure we maintain the magic that's in that demo of the record that we're cutting. Mm-hmm. And without the artist feeling like I'm trying to make them sound like another singer, you know, uh, or uh, change their sound. Like my thing is, yeah, no, let's let's do you, but we got to capture it like this, like where she or he put that breath in the demo or where where she or he took that break right there. We got to catch that exact same break. Mm. And that's pretty difficult to find sometimes, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Because you have to remember a lot of times people are getting in. A lot of times when people, especially up and coming, up and coming producers, when they get in the studio, they're going off of, I got to get a hit. I got to get a hit because I got to do this and I got to pay this. And, you know, they're not, they're thinking in the, in the back of their mind, they're thinking that they got a lot of responsibility and they're trying to get that big break. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, they're operating out of that. But you have to be able to separate all that stuff from what it is you do when you go in the studio. You got to be able to go, all right, yes, regular life is going on outside of here, but I'm not even thinking about that. I just want to be here in this lab and let creativity flow and prayerfully what we create in here will create a, a, a you know, a financial blessing for me. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, how do you be organic though? I think is the, the question because it's, I think it's absolutely the right advice um, artistically is you need to be in there and, and just let, let things flow. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've, you've ran across times where you can't do that, or there's uh, the music equivalent of writer's block where it's like uh, mm-hmm. nothing's coming up. So what, what are some of the techniques that you use to kind of get past that? Well, I mean, for, you know, for writer's block, you know, if you, if you can afford to, you know, if you can afford to, you just, man, just, just wait on it. Just let, don't try to force it, mm. you know, but, 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 but 
but keep studying and figure trying to find out what's hot. So that that's the first thing. The second thing for me as as a producer, you know, how, would you say how do I stay organic with it? Yeah. Like how do you let things come to you organically and and let them flow as you say? Man, it's it's disconnecting from the mindset of I got to make money. Mm. That's the biggest thing. That's the hardest thing to do. Because you go in and you're like, no, man, we got to, we got to, boom, boom, because I got this and I got this, I got responsibility. And it's like, and then a lot of times it's like, no, I got to prove a point, you know, all, all that stuff. And all that stuff for me just clouds my mind. It's like, I don't want to think about that stuff. Creativity is a thing. It doesn't come out of just thinking about what all the stuff that you're responsible for. Mm. It comes out of just being at, being at a place to where, you know, creative energy flows through you and you're able to to capture that. And then now, you take your crafts and your skills to 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 put it all together, and now we get technical. But as far as like getting that creative spark, you just got to you got to be a clean slate. Mm. You just got to leave it at the door when you come in the studio. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure that can be tough to do, but once you master it, I guess is where you really uh, you know become a professional. Right. This might be an odd question, but if you had to to kind of go back to to Kukurel back in the uh, in the early days, do you know anything now? Piece of advice that you'd give him back then? Yeah, I would say something that I learned that I wish I had learned earlier is to just let it ride, man. Let let life ride. Let it happen. Get out of the way. So this is like a, it's like a double. It's a weird thing. I hope this doesn't sound crazy. It's cool that I discovered it later and I accept that and I wouldn't change that for anything, but I wish I had learned it earlier to save myself a lot of stress to just go, man, just become great. Let me, let me study, be great at, it, at what it is I do, but let me get out of the way. Mm. You know, and when I say get out of the way, I mean that just in, a, in an emotional sense. I definitely mean that in a spiritual sense to just get out of the way and let things happen like let life happen don't don't feel like we have to control don't feel like you have to control everything because what i learned in my experience is that the more i try to control things and make things happen the more i will mess up and it becomes the more things that i have to clean up mm. later on when that organic thing actually happens mm. that, that's great that's great you know and I teach that like uh, all the all the the um, engineers and producers that I mentor and take under my wing. That's the first thing that I tell them. I'm just like I'm like just relax, you know. Tricky used to tell me all the time because I was that way at first. I was like, man, I can't wait till we, I can't wait till we, boom, boom, boom. I can't wait till we write. And he would just say, it's gonna happen. We're gonna do it. All we have to do is just be great at what we do, and it'll happen. And once it happens, people will keep calling, they will keep calling, and you will keep working. And, you know, and I was like, okay. And I, I definitely took that approach to heart. And it happened. You know, I got out of the way. It happened. So that's, and that's the thing that I pass on to people all the time. It's like, you, you know, we get, especially now we get all twisted up. We think that we got to have a whole bunch of followers and everybody's got to know every single thing that we worked on. And, you know, it, it's not creating hype. You know, that's my thing. It's like, listen, be honest. Like if you worked on a record and all you did was engineer, that's all, that's the only credit you need to put on there. Don't post, you know, I say this to my team all the time. Don't just post saying that you did something when you really didn't do it. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. 
like so it don't don't make it a show just do what you do be great at it and everything else will come like the work will come your profile will increase um but people will be coming to you for what it is you do yeah i think that's something that uh, a lot of people should really take to heart these days especially yeah <laughs> do you have anything else that you want to talk about one other thing, I'm really excited about a new venture I just started with, with my daughter who's been working with me for several years because mm-hmm. I've been mentoring engineers and now taking on and training vocal producers to be great and, and basically duplicating myself because I get so many calls. I can't be in every room everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I've just decided to take vocal engineers and, and vocal tuners and vocal producers under my wing and start this new uh, venture called Core. Uh, core management to where I'm, I'm imparting to all of them one core thing, and that is the importance of being a people person when you go in the studio with these artists. You know, it, it's not all about um, how great you are at you know just all the technical stuff, uh, but it's making sure that people feel comfortable with you and trust you and continue to call you. So. Mm. Um, you know, that, that's a thing. It's called core EMT management. And I'm excited about that. Bringing those McDonald's skills into the, uh, the music industry. 100%. <laughs> well, it's been excellent talking to you and, and hearing your story. Um, oh man, you know, it's, it's, thank you so it's much. It's a fascinating one. And, and to hear, uh, you know, how you got there is awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Follow Kook Harrell on Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what he's working on currently. He has a few interesting projects in the works right now that we couldn't tell you about on the show, but he definitely will be releasing some stuff in the future. If you enjoyed listening to his story, feel free to share it around to some friends. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, and we'll see you then.